darkening is work on behalf of the soul and so it goes against our poison for light and spirit an air of paradox clings to our destined our buddhist teaching story tells that the peacock's feathers are bright because it eats a poison it eats a poison it then transmutes into lovely colors that is how soul works by taking in poison and twist twistiness uh, and twistiness we move the dark matter of our lives toward beauty and connection masochism in the sense of a certain fascination with an aesthetic an aesthetic transformation of suffering is a regular feature of the path and the reason for this is simple life makes us suffer and at the same time gives us an obligation to relish it to suffer then is to taste life the descent develops our passive dreaming capacity, our acceptance of whatever comes as fate. We can see this universal stance at work most clearly in its most literal form with someone who actually seeks punishment. The release of masochism lies first in its quest for the certainties of transgression, punishment, and forgiveness. A man knocks on a door, and when it opens, he is blindfolded, blindfolded and bound and made to wait. Then he is whipped while being lectured about his imaginary transgressions. A senior executive, he finds it a relief to be free of command, to be wrong to be humiliated, to have someone else in charge. There is another pull to masochism as well. Through pain, we are released from the burden of consciousness. The physicality of suffering breaks through our alienation and ensures our participation in our own lives. And this theater does not belong only to the person with eccentric sexual taste. It is also the shape of love for the senior partner in a law firm whose wife throws such excoriating tantrums that he goes to work each day with ever deeper shadows under his eyes. While ever more abject, he asks her permission for the most trivial actions. In masochism, great forces move us about and their power makes the universe, for the moment, comprehensible and the most eccentric rules just. A world charged with causes is full of importance. Even its pains are reassuring. Suffering can confer belonging. Wait, wait we're pausing, right? Thank you. I just... I'm wondering if, if anyone relates to this, because I find it foreign. <laughs> boring, did you say? No, foreign. foreign. Oh, I bore it, okay. <clears throat> Can you say more about that? Well, I don't find it a relief to be um, humiliated for example. So I'm just curious about it. Well, I'm curious about the connection of dark and light and something I was reading earlier today was about that form and emptiness is not a dualism, but rather two things running parallel. And I wonder if his view of dark and light seems to be similar. And, um, hardly indistinguishable you know we, we the other day we were talking about hope and despair being the same so close together 
where where they you know at the surface they're opposites so and then also how one feeds the other like the the animal that eats the poison and then makes beautiful feathers so maybe he's going to find some relief to this or release i i uh, wanted to comment uh Genev, it, it made me uh, think of the paragraph we just read um there's another pull to masochism as well. Through pain, we are released from the burden of consciousness. The physicality of suffering breaks down our alienation. And I'm thinking of someone I knew, no, who at one point in their life used to cut themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, I, that part and I, I believe that that's a response to uh, not, you know, having uh, uh, some maybe emotions that are just so intense that the physicality of actually cutting yourself um, distracts you for a moment. Well, it's, it's a relief. I understand. That part I actually do relate to um, because pain is very much a form of physicality and you can't not be right in the middle of it. Kim? Uh, suffering, is that where we are? Yes. Suffering can confer belonging, moral relief, and superiority. The wolf that cringes and shows its throat is not attacked and has a place, albeit a low one, in the pack. We also have a temptation to claim the status of victim even when to outsiders, we do not seem to have earned it because to be a victim is both a plea and a special fate, a stance the soul <coughs> may take before the impenetrable gaze of eternity. Hmm. The perverse also appears in the flaws in our mentors. Part of being in the night is that even the guides there seem to be damaged. The heroes of the spirit, like those of the outer world, have their devouring madnesses, their paranoias and secret midnight trysts. The surprises and scandals of spiritual life are part of its movement towards soul as interesting and as necessary to it as the magic. Zen is a tradition known for its warrior, warrior style and robust attitude toward inner life. Yet one morning, the monks at the great temple of Nansenji in Japan came in for their meditation and found in the dim light before dawn, a bundle hanging from the rafters. Their master, death. People whispered, could it be that he was not enlightened? enlightened? But that is a question impossible to answer. That teacher has passed beyond our explanations, our hopes, and even our forgiveness. He has set out on his own long journey. Whether we don't know, and his action has become a source of our own painful curiosity about the cost, cost of being too close to the spirit as Icarus came too close to the sun. Closer to home, a famous Christian preacher, a man whose whole theme was to preach against lust, was found to patronize prostitutes. For his followers, no doubt, this was a dreadful betrayal. But at the same time, he becomes for us all a figure more complicated, sympathetic, nearer to the dark and its possibilities of growth. 
The vices of the great are dear to us. Exposed, they evoke envy, rage, loathing, and disappointment. We can see that they have not transcended the darkness we had hoped they would lead us beyond, the concealment and shabby floundering between the public and private realms. Our highest ideals are always being betrayed because they belong to the realm of the perfect spirit and no mere human can hold them for long. But the failures have their virtue too, drawing public people into community with us, making them recognizable, no longer monuments. They are revealed now as sharers with us of the secret excruciating places of initiation. These accounts offer the harsh poetry of the night journey, showing how much despair there is for residue even among the great, and also how much comedy, which is what we are left with when the heroes go astray. Is it back to, to me now? No. Fever cures, uh, fever cures fever. A thief catches a thief, and we fight a forest fire by back burning toward it. A snake winds around the healing staff of Asclepius, the ancient god of medicine, where it can still be seen today, etched into the glass doors of medical clinics. Escolipus was said to have access to the blood from the deadly Gorgon Medusa. Blood from the left arm killed people, but he could use a drop of blood from the right arm to bring the newly dead back to life. I heard that one before. <laughs> <clears throat> so with our inner poisons, the toxins can be the mode of cure. Here is a dream about the homeopathy of the spiritual and physical life. The dreamer was a successful professional woman whose emotions in reaction to a physical illness had grown volatile and tormented. Mm -hmm. I'm in a jungle setting. I'm observing a medical practice where they are attaching a snake to a child's chest to draw the poison out. The snake is bright, bright green, striped, very long and undulating. Mm -hmm. You want to just complete that paragraph? Or should I start? The green snake. Okay. The green snake of the dream, like the jungle, is full of energy, the waveform of life. The image tells us we can find a passage deeper into the emotions and fevers that make us sick, into a clearing in the inner wilderness where the cure is to be bitten by life. Mm -hmm. I like the um, I like the idea of uh, a fever curing fever. When I when I think of it, it is true. You run a fever, and then you come out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to, I went to a, a talk from a 
uh, Eastern pra medical practitioner, and he talked about how we when we have pain, we should never put cold on it, but always heat because we want to accelerate the the pain in order that the body would would start to heal. The cold just it makes it feel better, but it slows down the healing. And that's similar, isn't it? It is. It is. I think I'm next. Mm -hmm. uh, servitude, marriage to the night. What I love about this book or this chapter, what we've been reading is how it um, reframes the dark um, as being so important to, um, you know, to be in life, like this idea to be bitten by life. You know, we think of being bitten as a negative thing and life as a positive thing, but they, they're, they're so inter interrelated. Servitude, marriage to the night. And, and even um, there's a certain prayer in Judaism that you're supposed to say in the night, but they have such um, dislike of the night that they say you're supposed to say the prayer in the day, but you're just supposed to know you're supposed to say it at the night. And, you know, we, we have such prejudice against the night and about dark and, oh, that's dark, that's not comfortable, as those things being bad and wanting to eliminate them or find a release from them. But so these are even opposites, marriage and night, and normally, marriage to the night. Whether fate carries us off or we actively seek the night, a time comes when we identify with the dark, however involuntarily, when we marry and serve it. At such periods, we may intensify our sorrows as if to find a way through. The ancient myth describing this moment is the story of the maiden Persephone as at play in the spring fields, she found an irresistible, glorious, fragrant, hundred-headed Narcissus flower called up by the grandmother, the earth goddess. As Persephone ran to pluck it, a chasm opened in the earth and Hades, god of the underworld, came with his chariot and plunging horses and bore her down into his silent realm. Her mother, Demeter, mourned so terribly in our language, became so depressed that the survival of the earth was threatened and Persephone was allowed to return into the light of day. But while in the underworld, she had eaten seven pomegranate seeds from Hades' marble table. And so each winter, she must spend a portion of her year ruling with him as queen of the dead. The myth shows us in our first innocence and shows also how that innocence needs to be carried off by life. The earth goddess sets a plot going by summoning, summoning up as a potter draws clay into form, an irresistible flower. But Persephone participates too, as we all do. She eats the food of that dark place beneath, as we do also, accepting morality, mortality as the cost of incarnation. We can see the same inner energies in a story of contemporary life. A woman was married to a man who ruined holidays and birthdays with his irrational and violent behavior. He blamed her for things beyond her control and occasionally hit her. They were nearly always short of money. Her friends told her to leave him and she could uh, for a while when he hurt her, but she always had her reason for going back. One night, 
she dreamt a simple dream. Go ahead, that's part of that paragraph. I'm sorry? Go ahead, that's part of that paragraph, the dream. Okay. I am in an underground parking garage. A gangster comes along in a limousine. The car stops, the door opens. I climb in and we drive off. Here, there is a wrong union in the inner life, a continuing condition. In Hades Palace, the underground parking garage, place of shootouts and lurking stalkers. She gets in the car with the God of death, the stranger who seems eternally familiar. Her decision to go with the gangster to stay in the marriage seemed to be in the service of her longing to be constrained by a fierce power to intensify the night. Her friends lectured her and grieved just like Persephone's mother, but nothing seemed to be shifting. She was still eating pomegranate seeds in the house of her dark Lord and not yet ready for spring. When someone is in hell and they cannot understand reason, all we can give them is the kindness of our attention and our sorrow and the telling of their story. Sometimes we seem to relive in dramatic form the darkness of past trauma, to descend with full consciousness into the night we have known in the past, but not fully experienced. A woman grew up in a moderately successful Hollywood household, which beneath meticulous appearances of happiness and beauty held a dark secret. Her father had been sexually involved with her younger sister from the time the girl was three. The woman had protested, but a child herself at the time was helpless to change the situation. She had complex emotions about her memories, grief, rage, and even a feeling of not being chosen. Her first suicide attempt came when she was a young teenager. For years then, she spent each day trying not to kill herself. As she emerged from this terrible time, she began, she began to run with motorcycle gangs. She rode a big, fast bike and pumped iron. She learned the martial arts. If we read this time of her life as we would a poem, it was as if she had <coughs> accepted a role as Persephone in the underworld, lowering her consciousness. There are shamans who dream that there are animals in the world below, like Lucius, the hero of the golden ass was turned into a donkey, forced to know the darkness of animal life. She seemed to be making a performance piece out of the painful ingredients given her by the world she grew up in. She was drenching herself in the same desperation, but visibly, publicly, without pretense of beauty or happiness. Certainly, she was often close to death. Those who loved her could not could do nothing but worry and hold her in their awareness and wait the time through, taking on the role of Demeter. Eventually, dawn came with its gray light and the fever seemed to break. She became able to weep. She went off to graduate school, but she was like a 19th century explorer. Come, come back among the clubs in London, still with the traces of tropical illness on her face and tribal markings on her, 
on her arms. Normality never seemed quite able to claim her. Her fierceness, her muscles, the curious originality of her thought all seemed to say, thought I walk among you like this. I have lived a long time in the night and it has marked me. And as you see me now, so I am. While she found joy, she never forgot the night and like Pirsofon, seemed always to commit part of her year and part of herself to the underworld. I see we have Janil joining us. Hi. If, would you like to join us and also read? No, no, no. It's okay. I'll listen. Okay. Thanks, Daniel. But what was curious to me about the last chapter was that this was a person who, who was caught by the darkness and wasn't able to find any light. Did you guys see that as, as different from the chapter before where they're, they're woven together? She found light, but she just couldn't leave the darkness entirely. And we, we read that one line where you, you, when you're in the middle of the darkness, you don't see light. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? Mm. So I guess we just have to be patient. Well, it says while she found joy, she never forgot the night. So she existed in both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it, it says that she became able, I would say finally to weep. Mm -hmm. Yes. That seems to be pretty key, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, an acceptance there, something. Mm -hmm. The first surrender. At the bottom of the descent, we surrender because we have no other choice. This has nothing to do with surrender to a human agency. Like Job, we are falling ever deeper into matter, which is indifferent to our wishes our blandishments and our intelligence and which overwhelms us. The only experiment possible is to experience life's raucous grinding force at work upon us. At such a moment, no one speaks in consciousness. There is a babble, a multiplicity of fragments. Terror may intensify to the point where consciousness disintegrates then even the healing elements may betray us. We may dream of turning on a garden hose only to find that the fur and skull bones of a rat comes out or dream of pools of water in which drowned children float. At such a time, we seem to be reduced to a body that drifts around, mere matter being bathed in the waters of death. No volitional movement is happening. There is nothing for us to do. Naked, we endure, we undergo. The paradigm for our surrender to the night occurs not in the mind, but in the physical body. When we are sick, when we are dying, and perhaps for women when giving birth. At such times, there is no graceful way to maneuver the ship of awareness, for we are in the keep of forces larger than ourselves, and we live or die at their behest. This surrender seems to us to be kind of death, a kind of death. I was just going to comment whenever I see some sort of a comparison to giving birth, it always brings me back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
actually the feeling uh, that there is no control there. I mean, you just have to roll with what's happening. You know, it's, it's, you don't have any other choice really. Yeah, pretty mm -hmm. interesting. For all its difficulty, we have to trust this lowering of our awareness as eventually we will have to surrender to the body's journey <coughs> into its actual physical death. In our descent, it helps if we take toward our own suffering the attitude we might have sitting with someone during the last hours. A dying person may hallucinate grow demented, be unable to move or speak, be in a coma. Sitting with someone in such a condition, trust is all we have. We do not trust that there will be a happy ending, but that this dark moment is itself life and holds its own reasons. <clears throat> when we listen very closely, there is some fur awareness to connect with, even in a coma. There's always a breathing rhythm, always the particular quality of mind evoked in us by the person we sit with, the particular images that visit us, different from the quality and images evoked by any other person. In the midst of neurological shipwreck, there is a tiny stirring. Keeping company with death, we stretch our capacity to honor all parts of life and learn that even the undurable can be endured. What's, what's her awareness? What is that? Does anybody know? You are. Something that's a precursor to something. So um, that's what that prefix means. Oh, that's new. Well, it's actually an, an adjective. Right. It's like primordial. Yeah. It, it's out, of which that, out of which that thing emerges. So awareness arises from that. Oh, okay. I wanted to mention uh, interesting that he's using coma. Uh, my mother was in a coma for two weeks when she was 13. She had uh, pneumonia and lapsed into a coma. And when she came out of it, um, she shared that she was having the most beautiful dream, that it was just the most beautiful heavenly dreams. And it was everything that she ever wanted as a 13 year old. <laughs> was happening in this coma. <laughs> huh. she, she was surrounded by celebrities that she adored on the movie screen and everybody included <laughs> her and thought she was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very angry that she woke up. <laughs> but I don't know that that's the case for everybody in a coma, but it's pretty interesting. It was an interesting story to me. In the midst of neurological shipwreck, there is a tiny stirring. Dreams. <laughs> Our dreams have broken. Our dreams of broken bodies and the intense interest we take in stories of loss and morality tell us that even death is something. To witness it is simply one of our tasks, our creatures. Entering our own time of descent, we undergo what we may have only had sympathy with before. Then it is the business of the world to hold us, for we cannot hold ourselves. The dark foundations, the body. Now that my ladder is gone, 
I must lie down where all the letters start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. W.B. Yeats. The bottom of night has such a thick, dense quality that the alchemist saw it in terms of matter rather than process. They called it the prima materia because for them, it seemed to be the first gross aspect of life, unrefined, unredeemed by any admixture of spirit, and yet a kind of foundation for all that follows, for all wisdom and art. Daniel, could you please um, move the text a little bit to the left? The, um, you may want to move the uh, participants, uh, maybe. It's okay. difficult for me to change I can, the... I can try. Uh, that helps. No, I don't think I can move it. There's a little slider. There's a white uh, bar and um, in between the participants and the, and the um, image of the page. You can move it. Arrow up? No. No, no you can move to the right. You can make the participants look smaller and the page look bigger. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, I can reduce the font size. That oh, that's, yeah. well, yeah, <laughs> that's but better box for me. Daniel, also, you cannot, you don't have the ability to make it narrower and then longer. Like you can make your window um, less wide and then longer. No, they should be, don't worry about it. <laughs> yes, I can try to don't. do like No, this. no, don't worry, no, no, don't, don't, don't worry. Thank you. When yeah. we reach this stage, things have solidified as much as they are going to. This bottom substance is neutral and impersonal, but mm -hmm. at first we experience it as repulsive and alien. Foundations are indifferent to niceties. <laughs> its heaviness and lack of form make it difficult to work with. The ground of night doesn't have a direct voice and speaks in symptoms and pathology, including what we cannot bear about ourselves, asking us to acknowledge the despised and the dangerous as our own. I feel like somebody's telling me my own story. It's really... <laughs> I don't even have a word for it. I've never heard anyone describe this before. It's profoundly like, yes. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm struck by um, the bottom substance is neutral and impersonal, but we, at first we experience it as repulsive and alien. Um, it's, I think, because we have an idea about, you know, or a fear, uh, you know, about something, you know, we kind of project onto it. Um, it's interesting. It says here. Well, uh, yeah, project onto it, including what we cannot bear about ourselves. It's almost as if this is a neutral place, but we project everything that's uh, hidden and, and uh, hurting and frightened and fearful onto it. That's kind of interesting. And Sorry. We see what we don't want to see about ourselves, but hopefully we do become able to bear that. That's why we have to read on. 
And the more of such resistance and pain we bring to the work, the more thorough our darkening, the better provided we can we come through it. Alchem alchemical authors emphasize the importance of beginning with the right material, which differs from alchemist to alchemist and is typically bizarre. The face of a dog and the pus of su supporting wounds are recommended. In our inner lives, these basic in the ingredients of the dark might be grief, rage, incompetence, helplessness, shame. In the same way, in the tale of Sleeping Beauty, the evil, the evil spirit must be invited to the naming ceremony, to the beginning of life, or she will curse the child newly born. Dark ingredients might include a terrible symptom, such as an ungovernable sexual compulsion, a violent rage, a drug addiction, or a curious symptom like cross-dressing. Whatever is despised and given, no place becomes itself the source of beauty yet to be born. The basic stuff of matter is so opposite to spirit that this opposition comes to constitute relationship. Here is a woman's dream of what is found when we touch the bottom of the descent. The dream fragment links her inner situation to one of the great ancient stories, the descent of spirit into matter. Pass. Can I just make a comment about what we read previously? Yeah. Of course. All right. So, you know, I honestly, I never really thought of the Cinderella story or any of them in the light that is being expressed here, which is phenomenal, right? Like, I always felt bad for them. <laughs> I always felt bad that the wicked um the evil one was left out you know i was felt that but in, in in the light of the work uh that we're reading here it's like how powerful is it to embrace that negative aspect of ourselves well I, I don't believe we have negative aspects right that's my philosophy is just anyway but that part of ourself that we wish to remain hidden or unseen, but when you like embrace it, there is um, I want to and I put this in quotation control how it appears, right? Because if they didn't invite her in, then she could run really amok. But by saying, "Okay, I acknowledge you, I see you, come in," you know, but and you you get you get a say, you know, because you're part of this story too. How different, uh, um how different a role it is, right? Rather than having her run amok and not inviting her in. I, I just, it's a whole new way for me now to watch these <laughs> fairy tales that we have engaged in on that, you know, surface level and now to see it in a whole new light. So mm -hmm. I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Oh, should I read now? Yes. I am at the foot of the stairs. At my feet, I find a crumpled up bag and dump out the contents. A mm. dead crow spills out. It didn't die of natural causes. Its body has been flailed about violently.
This image has the flavor of Gnostic legends mm -hmm. in which the soul descends out of heaven and becomes twisted and imprisoned in matter. The dream crow is a creature fallen from air and light. The, the carrion eater has become carrion. Its feathers are dark and its life gone. There is nothing more useless or more entirely material than a dead crow. It is not <coughs> even food. Yet, as we continue to be immersed in night and the obstinacy of the ground grows more evident and undeniable, it loses its repulsive quality. Sometimes the foundation may appear as something so small, neglected, and insignificant that it is not disgusting or frightening. It is barely noticeable. Once in a then fairly new Melanesian nation, an English woman founded an institute where she taught local artists. One began by bringing carefully copied cartoons to her, advertisements he'd seen on the streets. This was his only idea of what she could mean by art. Otherwise, he was utterly lost. She almost despaired. But one day in the bottom corner of a drawing, she saw a tiny black squiggle. He ventured that it was a spider. This small dark bug was the first thing of his own that he had offered. And she asked him for more of that. It was the crucial moment. Before, nothing of himself had been worth bringing to the work, and so nothing was yet alive. The next squiggle was bigger. He began to draw and paint the things around him, people and helicopters and dogs. And eventually his overspilling vision would carry him into a new life as an artist and an international, and an international renown. That first squiggle had no particular shape to it and hardly any substance, yet it formed the basic ground of his work. That's a, a, such a great description of teaching, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I had a, I, my first art teacher was like that, no matter what anyone did he could find them in the piece and, and he'd say, now enlarge that or, you know, work with that or so beautiful. Reaching the soul's own material is an achievement. When we begin the work by beginning to fall, we have little awareness of the foundation. It is bedrock and we must be strapped down before we can arrive at it. You know, this reminds me of the story of um, Hemingway, who as a young man was a, you know, determined writer, and he had written many, many stories, and he carried them about in a suitcase, and he was on a train, and the suitcase was stolen. And in those days, there weren't any copies. So all of his work, he was probably in his late 20s by then, all of his work was gone completely. And he said, I realized I was going to have to strip everything down to the bare essentials and start over. And that was the beginning of his very famous Hemingway style, um, just stripping everything to the bone. And he said, I realized I wanted to, not to describe an experience, but to write in such a way that the reader had the experience themselves. Wow. So that, was, that was the bedrock, you know, losing all of his story. <laughs> but it's so great the way he recovered. And yeah. I, know, I know someone who's, whose briefcase with, with his PhD almost done was stolen and there was no copy. And he was just, I'm not gonna do any more on that. You know, that was it. It wasn't yeah. what Hemingway did. Yeah, he said, I broke down my writing um, completely. And I started with um, trying to write one true sentence. And he said, it took me all day. And he said, I couldn't even imagine how long it would take to write a paragraph. <laughs> when the foundation appears in a neutral, unremarkable form, the purification is nearly complete. 
A spiritual teacher had a dream about such a moment of bare, solid simplicity. All that is in the dream is a black stone, like a night without its stars. It fills my awareness. It is the only thing. I love that. You know, when you strip away all of your uh, projections and fears and anxieties and concern about this, what you consider this dark place. Um, there's just this, I picture a smooth black stone. <laughs> I really like that image. When we do not bring our emotions to it, the basic stuff we depend on is undifferentiated and nondescript. But its appearance marks an important moment. That rock is the source. Stones compose the cathedral of Chartres and a worker's cottage, the walls of Machu Picchu and a kitchen floor. Only if we come to the foundation does our surrender matter. We have found something to build on, as Gary Snyder says. No one loves rock, yet we are here. Mm -hmm. I love rock. <laughs> when the basic substance appears, as a dead or mutile, mutilated, mutilated animal, we saw earlier in the dream of the dead crow, we have come nearer to the possibility of transformation. A woman had lost her way and begun to fall through her life. The beliefs that had once guided her her strategies for living were now under intense pressure. She had a dream in which mutilation mm -hmm. and nourishment were combined. It is night in my dream. People are gathered around the pieces of this membered black cow. Is it a cow or a crow? Yeah. Cow. Cow. Well, yes, but it seemed like that he's referring to the earlier. No, I don't think so. He's just saying, as we saw earlier in the dream of the crow, I think this is a cow. Okay. This image of dismemberment are often signs of transformation. Hmm. It, it's interesting uh, if you look into dream symbology of the things that are marking transformation. It's you know not what you think because in the dream it feels disturbing. You know, isn't it interesting? This image shows the secret affinity between night and the spirit entering the work. The cow, unlike the crow, is an image of the world of matter that we can work with. Fertile, nourishing, fragmented, lying prone beneath all thought. And so the people gather around it. Buddhists describe a storehouse consciousness a compendium, an infinite junk shop, the mind, holding everything that we have forgotten, everything that even our ancestors have forgotten. The sight of the mammoth besides the, the mammoths besides glaciers, the Devonian ocean that runs in our blood, the material in our cells that doesn't have a voice. Since we're not using our own efforts and yet something maintains life. 
we are at the irreducible core. We are able to embrace the difficult thing. The black cow rests in that storehouse underneath awareness and decoration. Cut into pieces, the cow is useful. It can fertilize the fields. Its hide can make a jacket or shoes and we can eat it as we eat the body of God in the Catholic communion. The death of the black cow makes life possible. I think we may want to finish here. Yeah. So we're going to do our 10 minutes now for writing, meditation, or something else. Can him. I just wanted to, uh, to say that while I was sitting uh, quietly here, I was thinking about um, if, you, if you live long enough, and I'm sure everybody on this screen has lived long enough to meet some pretty gnarly times, you know. And um, I was just reflecting back, you know, that each one of those times felt so dark, and yet, um, you know, as I as I reflect on it, uh, something came out of it. Something new was born out of it, you know. Um, you know, my the example I would give my one of the things I was thinking was my first divorce when I was very, very young and I'd never held down a job and I had two young children and I was on welfare. And the first job that I managed to get, I was fired from in two weeks because I was in over my head. And the depth of depression I had in that moment, I, I can't even, I'm going back to it now. It was such that I, I didn't talk on the phone to anybody for three days. I stayed in the house and just cried. And then um, I kind of, I knew I had to come up because I had, girl, I had children. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just sit there and, and disappear. So I, reached out and um, to someone who could help me find another job. And I got that job and slowly but surely I became adept at doing the job. I wasn't fired from the new job. And all of a sudden, in looking back, I realized I gained uh, confidence and, and some sort of um, inner strength that I didn't know I had, you know, so. And that's just one example. And I'm sure everybody here can kind of come up with some way that everything seemed kind of really dark. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about being as old as I am, which is pretty old, that I can find even more than one example of that. <laughs> and there may be more to come, but now I have confidence, you know, in this dark that we've been reading about. Mm. May I read what I wrote? Death, <clears throat> loss, cruelty, madness, shame, and despair broke me into pieces that made possible a mosaic in which my cracked, chipped slivers claimed new meaning in relation to each other, a new creation born. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I can read what I wrote. Yeah. I, I'm always talking about the process of reading this book. So I, I wrote this dark material, earthy, gritty, filled with images of destruction and mutilation, represents all of life that we do not want to see, that we spend our lives avoiding, 
papering over, distracting ourselves from. It's hard to see it without cringing, sucking back, shuddering, trying to divert our gaze. If I didn't know how this book pulled out of this dark place, I would not want to go any further. In fact, on first reading, I almost abandoned it at this point. Hmm. Already in that place, I longed for light, for reassurance, for hope, for care. I'm glad I continued as the book drew me through the work that needed to be done, that continues to be done in the service of genuine liberation. No one wants to feel those emotions, deal with those existential terrors, grope their way through that darkness. No one wants to be so uncertain of how long this dark grip of chaos and terror will last, how much worse it may become. It's just a book, we assure ourselves, slamming it shut, just words on a page, ink, paper, some writer's weird ideas, nothing to do with them. But we can't unknow what we discover there about ourselves, about our lives, about this naked existence. And so we have to read on. We have to read on because the only way out is through. Ooh. May I read mine? <laughs> All right, so anyway, uh, I'll read first. Uh, who is black cow? Birth, serenity, sustenance of land and man. Ko, ko, who is black crow? Harbinger of change, physical to spiritual. Do you believe the twisted tales that has diluted my truth to engender fear? Where my name is thrown around the campfires to keep you small? Call, call, I am Black Crow. I am death. Do not fear me. Wow. And so I just think that, uh, you know, in the reading, it said, the cow is giving so much and at least with the cows this you know you can get this but and you know for me the crow held so much more you know and but yet the person writing couldn't see that so i just think that a lot of times there are stories told that we take it as a given on the superficial level you know but when you go deeper the messages are deeper we you know there's more to the story than what we are told right so mm -hmm. so yeah <laughs> thank you Every reading is a fresh reading. I could read mine. My AC in my car was not working this weekend. It had gone from sometimes to never. I decided to take it to be fixed Monday morning, but then Monday morning, it worked perfectly. So maybe Monday afternoon, it would be broken, but it was even colder. Finally, I gave up and wondered if God had intervened because she thought I had followed the laws, or maybe a genie had snuck into my driveway and fixed it. How should I feel with my brokenness being broken? Why can't I just treasure the cold air that might be just a Monday happening? <laughs> I had taken it to be repaired last week, and of course, it started working. And he said, I can't repair it if it's not broken. <laughs> and so I had to do it early in the week when Linda's not teaching, so she could pick me up. So it had, I needed to be broken on Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> what a problem! A problem with a non problem. Mm. Where's a picture? Where, where's your drawing? I didn't do, I, I failed. I, no picture. <laughs> I apologize. I... It's, 
It's kind of like when you have a really good question you want to ask your Zen teacher, but then it's a few days before you can see that person. And then it sort of morphs into something else or disappears altogether. That always used to happen to me. I think, finally, a good question to ask her. I can't wait to see her. Or then the answer comes. I was telling Lori that I had practice discussion with her. She said, no, you know, she was like, no, you didn't. And so, but when I was sitting, I had this question and then I had this answer and, you know, it went on and on and on. It was a great practice discussion. And I even credit her and other people for, (laughs) you know, for the conversation. It wasn't like I did it all myself. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> okay it's our time Eight thirty-one. this is great it's great to see everybody thank you and, thank, and you. thank you jay for coming is this your first yeah. time in, in depth and practice uh, i've seen jay before uh oh you've seen book. jay in many things but yeah but did you come to depth and practice before and one one time before oh okay well, I hope you'll come again. Yes. Did, did you get this book? Do you have this book? I um I have ordered it, yes. So I'm waiting for oh. it to come in. Oh, I just wondered if you had read the part before we got to what uh, tonight. No. Uh, yeah. So. And it is available as a PDF if you Google it. Oh, really? Yeah. Just oh, by, cool. By name. I mean, I already ordered it but well, that's uh, I'll great. Look for yeah it. yeah, it, yeah I'll look there's for no it. kindle which is why we're using the the pdf yeah no worries this is awesome okay thank you okay good night everybody good night bye bye